We'll be looking at page 47 in just a, a bit. Next year in April, we're hoping to have a trip to the Holy Land, to Israel. And we're trying to get folks to register for that, and will be for the next many weeks. And as part of that effort, we received a, about a minute and a half video from the travel company that we're partnering with uh, that has taken dozens, literally dozens of trips uh, like exactly like the one we're doing. So they know all the ins and outs of that. So we've got a minute and a half video. And if you have interest in the Israel trip, then you need to see Sue Biggs about that. And Sue is right over here. She's got her hand up right there. And Sue is also, all right, there's Sue. Thank you, Sue. And Sue's also going to stand. She was during Cafe Community, but she's also going to be at the Welcome Center after we're done here. Now, Sue, stay clear of the guys doing the rock salt because they'll recruit you to help them with the rock salt, okay? But Sue will be out there as well, and you can talk to her about the details of the trip. So let's watch the video, and then we'll get into our lesson. A couple of weeks ago, we transitioned from looking at world religions and the difference between, in particular, Islam, that was the one we spent several weeks on, and its tenets, versus those of biblical Christianity. We transitioned, though, from that uh, and saved some of the other world religions that we have in your notes, Hinduism and uh, Judaism and Buddhism, uh, because we started a few weeks ago looking at uh, Roman Catholicism. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the major doctrines of Roman Catholicism and how those compare and contrast to biblical Christianity. And I just want to review with you what we've, what we've seen, and then we'll pick up in a bit on page 47. But we've seen that the underlying issues that gave rise to what's called the Protestant Reformation in the year of 1517, 1517, uh, led by Martin Luther. The issues that that led to that had been fomenting for several centuries prior to the Reformation itself. In your notes, we looked at men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, who were, in the case of Wycliffe, condemned by the church, in the case of Huss, burned at the stake uh, by the church, because of their views of the particular, in particular, the authority of Scripture. 
and the sole authority of, of Scripture. And I've been trying to make the case the last two weeks that this issue of authority is absolutely crucial and foundational. Because if you have differing sources of authority, then it should come as no surprise to any of us that you will arrive at different conclusions. Because those different sources of authority are likely to teach uh, divergent things. And indeed, uh, we found that that's, that's the case. So in Roman Catholicism, you don't have only the Bible as authority. You don't have sola scriptura, the Latin phrase that Luther and the other reformers would use, the scriptures alone, but rather you have the scriptures, yes, but the scriptures and other sources of authority, including what is called the sacred tradition of the church. Now, what does that sacred tradition of the church uh, end up teaching? What is it and what does it end up teaching? Uh, I encourage you to turn back to page 40, uh, 43, page 43. Hold your, we'll come back to page 47 in a bit. But take a look at page 43. And at the bottom of page 43, Vatican II on Scripture and Tradition. And I explained that Vatican II was an ecumenical council of the church, an official council of the church in the 1960s. And it, like all of these ecumenical councils that have been held throughout the centuries, has pronouncements that it makes. And one of the pronouncements from Vatican II is at the bottom of page 43. And you see the bolded and italicized line at the very bottom. Both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. So from official Roman Catholic teaching, as I've just uh, cited for you, the scriptures are authority, but the scriptures alone are not the authority. But you've got sacred tradition and sacred scripture, and they are equal authorities. Well, that would be okay if they taught uh, consistently. But, uh, for example, they, they do not. And how do we know that they, they do not? Page 44. There are doctrines in, within Roman Catholicism, as I pointed out last week, that are not found in Scripture. And it's important for you to know that they're not only not found in your Scripture, they're not found in the Catholic Bible either. Uh, the Catholic Bible differs from your Bible because your Bible has 66 books and the Roman Catholic Bible has 73, and the additional seven books are additions to the Old Testament, not the New Testament, the Old Testament. Uh, but they don't affect the doctrines that I'm going to, to mention to you, namely about uh, Mary and the career of Mary and the teaching of Roman Catholicism, for example, that Mary never, uh, never uh, decayed. Her body never decayed. I started to say she never died. They don't say she never died. They haven't answered whether she died or not. If she died, she wasn't in the grave very long, but her, but her body did not see corruption. She was assumed bodily into heaven shortly after her death, if she died at all. And that is called the assumption of Mary. So on page 44, I have for you uh, a quote, an extended quote, from Carl Keating. Carl Keating is the leading apologist in modern-day American Roman Catholicism. He heads up a group called Catholic Answers, and he wrote a book called Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And here's one of the quotes from that book 
That's a fourth paragraph on page 44. Most arguments in favor of the assumption, as developed over centuries by the fathers and doctors of the church, concern not so much scriptural references. There are few that speak even indirectly to the matter, and that, by the way, parenthesis is his, so I'm still quoting him there. So they concern not so much scriptural references, but rather the fittingness of the privilege. The speculative grounds considered, again, that's his word, speculative, include Mary's freedom from sin, her motherhood of God, her perpetual virginity, and the key, her participation in the salvific work of Christ. It seems, he says, most fitting that she should attain the full fruit of the redemption, which is the glorification of the soul and body. But there is more than just fittingness. Pius XII said the assumption is really a consequence of the Immaculate Conception. Still, fundamentalists ask, where is the proof from Scripture? And he says, strictly there is none. It was the Catholic Church that was commissioned by Christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly. The mere fact that the Church teaches the doctrine of the Assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. So you see from the mouth of the leading apologist for Roman Catholicism in America, Carl Keating, that it doesn't have to be found in the Bible. That if the church teaches it as true, then it is true, and it is just as true as anything that is found in, in the Bible, is what uh, Keating is saying, along with Vatican II and church tradition and Scripture being on equal par with one another. So last week we saw on pages 45 and 46, then, what happens when the Scriptures alone as your authority is rejected. When you have the scriptures, yes, but then you have uh, competing uh, sources of authority. And one of the things that has happened are these doctrines regarding Mary, and we looked at a couple of those last week. In Keating's statement that I just read, he says, he quotes Pius, Pope Pius XII as saying that the assumption of Mary is actually built upon the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Well, okay, if the assumption of Mary, being bodily assumed into heaven, followed from the Immaculate Conception, logically and irrefutably, and the Immaculate Conception was something taught in the Bible, okay, maybe. So here, here is Pope Pius XII making a reference to a doctrine, the Immaculate Conception, to support another doctrine, the Assumption, neither of which are taught in the Bible. So he's saying the Assumption is based upon the Immaculate Conception, but the Immaculate Conception isn't taught in the Bible either. Now, what is the Immaculate Conception? We saw last week. That is the Immaculate, Miraculous Conception of Mary by her mother. And as I said last week, many Roman Catholics think that the Immaculate Conception refers to the Miraculous Conception of Jesus in Mary. Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, and the Catholics believe that, and we believe that, so we agree on that. But the Immaculate Conception refers to a different miraculous conception. In Roman Catholicism, there are two miraculous conceptions. That of Jesus by her mother and that of, uh, that of Mary by her mother and that of Jesus, uh, within Mary. And that's what's called the Immaculate Conception. And on page 45, you see the declaration of Pope Pius IX regarding the Immaculate Conception. And you see the year there. That in bold it says Roman Catholic Marian dogmas, and then the Immaculate Conception under that declaration of Pius IX, 1854. So the year 1854 was the year 
that the Pope declared this to be an official dogma of the church. And a dogma is an authoritative teaching that must be believed. So a faithful Roman Catholic must believe that Mary was miraculously conceived in her mother as much as a faithful Roman Catholic believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These are equal dogmas, and you must believe that. And the problem is that in the Bible, and including the Roman Catholic Bible, there is nothing said about Mary's early life. There's nothing said about her mother. We don't know who her mother is. Catholic tradition teaches that it was someone named Saint Anne, but there is no such person in, in, either, in either Bible. And then from that, says Pope Pius XII, as we saw, comes the assumption. So once you've gotten this speculative teaching about the Immaculate Conception, a number of things flow from that, including the assumption of Mary. And on page 46, you see the declaration of Pius XII. Top of page 46, and notice that it is 1950. 1950, so what, 64 years ago the Assumption of Mary was declared to be a dogma. All right, so those are Roman Catholic dogmas regarding Mary. Now on page 47 where we left off, our Roman Catholic dogma on, you see, purgatory and indulgences. Purgatory and indulgences. And I want to spend a little bit of time then uh, talking about those doctrines and the fact that those are not found in, in Scripture either to further make the case that once you have a shaky foundation as your source of authority, now flowing from that are going to be a number of divergent teachings from what, from what the Bible says. You see that in what the church teaches about Mary, immaculate conception, assumption, but not just that, perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had any other children, we saw last week that's a direct contradiction of Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 where Jesus' brothers and sisters are actually named. Uh, the sinlessness of Mary, because she was immaculate conceived, she was born without the stain of original sin, and according to the church, she lived a, a sinless life. So, But there's there are those teachings, but in addition to that, page 47, there are these dogmas, authoritative teachings that must be believed on purgatory and indulgences. The Council of Florence in 1439 declared on the issue of purgatory, if those truly penitent have departed in the love of God, before they have made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission, the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments. And so that they may be released from punishments of this kind, the suffrages of the living faithful are of advantage to them, namely the sacrifices of masses, prayers, and almsgiving, and other works of piety which are customarily performed by the faithful for other faithful according to the institutions of the church. So you know, it's wordy. It's always wordy uh, when, you, when you get into dogma. But uh, what it's saying is someone dies and they have not made satisfaction for the punishments that are to go with sins committed. And that satisfaction will then need to be made in purgatory. Now, that word satisfaction is important. Because as we're going to see a bit later, in Roman Catholicism, as you can see here, that, that the satisfaction has got to be made by the individual 
or by other individuals on their behalf. Which, now if you're thinking about this for a bit, that means that the satisfaction of the cross then was unsatisfactory. And so this now gets to some extremely important matters because now you start to impinge upon the value and efficacy of the cross of Jesus and whether or not it's satisfied for the covering and the punishment of, of sins. The Council of Florence says no, and the Council of Trent, bottom of page 47, says, I have in bold for you at the bottom of page 47, if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner, that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. So serious stuff indeed. Now, page 48. A number of times in these notes, I quote the document that you see referenced at the top of page 48. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. And a catechism is simply a, a question and answer format. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church will ask a question, and then it will have another of a number of sections answering those questions. And you have the Westminster Catechism. There are lots of very good biblical catechisms. A catechism is a very good thing as long as what it teaches, the answers it gives, are, are biblical. But there is this official Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's a very thick book. I have it in, in my office. And the last update to that was 20 years ago in 1990. So this is, it's not that old. As I say, it was updated in 94. But I, I quoted a number of times in here so that you all see that these teachings are still in effect. That this is not something that was taught centuries ago but has long been forgotten about. This idea of purgatory and as we're going to see indulgences uh, is still taught in the, uh, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So just the first paragraph there, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve, achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the same purgatory, uh, the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. And goes on. Council of Florence, Council of Trent, which we have already we have already alluded to. Now, how does someone get out of purgatory? A few weeks ago when we started this uh, series, uh, this section of the series, I mentioned to you the indulgent salesman that had come to Wittenberg, Germany, and that that became the last straw for Martin Luther when Johann Tetzel was plying his trade there, and he had a little jingle sell as he sold these things called indulgences where he said, when the coin, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So he's selling these indulgences for money. And as he sells them for money, then people are being released from the punishments of purgatory. That's why middle of page 48 I say, indulgences are the vehicle of, of release. And these quotations are from the catechism of the, the Catholic Church. Again, from 1994. It, in turn, is quoting a 1967 church document. So, paragraph 1471, the doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked 
to the effects of the sacrament of penance. What is an indulgence? It is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian is duly disposed, who is duly disposed, gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, when, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or of or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. Now, that's all based then on a particular view of, of sin. And this is what page 49 and the Catholic Catechism tells you about this issue of, of sin. Notice paragraph 1472. To understand this doctrine and practice of the church, it's necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. Now, you see what's being said there. There's two kinds of sins. There are grave sins and there are venial sins, sometimes called mortal sins or, or venial sins. And the venial sins are are the less serious, and importantly, the venial sins, unlike the grave sins, do not deprive you of communion with God. Well, biblically, every sin deprives you of communi communion with God. No matter what sin it is, it deprives you of communion with God. And that, that relationship can only be mended by the person and work of, of Jesus. But but here you've not not only this thing called purgatory that's not taught in Scripture, but now you have this division of, of sins, and purgatory serves for the less serious, the punishments of the less serious sins. The venial, the venial sins. Now, related to that, this is how you get this whole doctrine of purgatory. People have to make satisfaction for the punishment for certain kinds of sins after they die. That those certain kinds of sins are the, the lesser sins, the venial sins that will still allow someone admission into heaven, but the satisfaction has to be made for punishment. But then related to that is who can make the satisfaction. And that's where the middle of page 49 comes in, the communion of saints. Look at paragraph 1475. In the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. Between them there is, too, an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits others, well beyond the harm that the sin of one could cause others. Thus, recourse to the communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified of the punishments for sin. Again, wordy, here's what it's saying. You know, you got people who've got your back. They've got excess, you've got some people who've got excess holiness. And their excess holiness can benefit you. You've got a deficit, they've got a credit, and there's this happy communion between, between the two. I mean, that's what's being said there. Next paragraph. We call these spiritual goods of the communion of saints the church's treasury, which is not the sum total of the material goods which have accumulated during the course of the centuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is of infinite value, which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. 
They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. But then it goes on to say, this treasury includes as well. Okay, so please don't misunderstand. Christ is a central figure. It's just that it's not Christ alone. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Virgin, Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by His grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission of the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation. Now, you see, all see the language? In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. So, you've got people who have attained their own salvation. They've done well enough, and not only well enough, but there are excess merits from those people in this thing called the treasury of the church. Now, how do you get things out of the treasury of the church? That's where indulgences come in. An indulgence is the Latin term is indulgentia and it means a permit and it is a it is a is a permit for a a uh, and a withdrawal from the the treasury of merit so the next two paragraphs an indulgence is obtained through the church who by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus intervenes in favor of individual christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of temporal punishment due for their sins. Thus the church does not want simply to come to the aid of these Christians, but also to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Since the faithful departed, now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints, one way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them, so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. So the vehicle of release from purgatory uh, is indulgences. But the basis for having this excess merit in the treasury is what I say in the middle of page 50. It's meritorious works on the part of, of individuals who are tr attaining their own salvation. So the Council of Trent, if anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. So if anybody says that works are not necessary for you to get to heaven uh, and don't contribute to you getting to heaven, let him be accursed. If anyone saith that the good works of one that is justified does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life, if so be, however, that he depart in grace and also an increase of glory, let him be anathema. Now, again, always wordy, but you see what's being said there. If you say that you obtain eternal life apart from truly meriting an increase of grace and meriting eternal life, then let that person be accursed. And then Ludwig Ott, Roman Catholic theologian, says, uh, says the same kind of thing. All right. So that's the system. As it is set up, let me, let me summarize and then we'll move on to page 51. But you have two different kinds of sins. 
if you die with a mortal sin, a grave sin to your account, without that being covered uh, through the sacraments of the church, you cannot go to heaven. If you, a grave sin would be murder, for example. If one commits suicide, they cannot go to heaven in Roman Catholicism because suicide is murder and there is no repair to the sacraments of the church to have that taken care of. So that's one type of sin, a grave, mortal sin. Then you've got the venial sins. These are so-called lesser sins. These do not affect communion with, with God, but rather they promote an unhealthy attachment to creatures that we read earlier. So for those sins, you will go to heaven. You still have those on your account, but you can still go to heaven but there are punishments attached to those sins, and those punishments have to be satisfied. The work of Christ has not satisfied. So that satisfaction has to be made by, among other things, meritorious works of other individuals on the behalf of the one who is in purgatory. Those meritorious works are kept in the treasury of merit of the church. And the church has the power to release these works to the credit of someone who is in purgatory through the indulgence system. And people pay for, or people do good works for, the indulgences, both for themselves and their future purgatory, or for those who are currently in purgatory. Now, I said this is not ancient history, quoting for you the Catechism from 1994. Uh, Pope John Paul II, who is now departed, but Pope John Paul II uh, declared the year 2000 a year of jubilee. And in the year of jubilee, the church was making uh, offers. Uh, you can Google this. So I'm not making this up. Was making offers of plenary indulgences. So you guys know that there's this idea of jubilee in the first part of your Bible, in the Old Testament, the year of jubilee. Uh, so every 50th year, there would be this year of jubilee. And, you know, slaves are freed and debts are, debts are forgiven and all kinds of things in the year of jubilee. Well, 2000 is declared a year of jubilee. And in the year of jubilee, debts are being forgiven through the sale of plenary indulgences. People could obtain plenary indulgences just 14 years ago. And a plenary indulgence is plenary full. So this is a good thing to have. And I only mention it because it was just 14 years ago. So this practice is still current. This practice that Johann Tetzel was engaged in at the beginning of the Reformation is still going on. Now, to be fair, because I always want to be accurate, our Roman Catholic friends would say that the church is very careful to not allow abuses of the system like Tetzel was involved in, and that's true. I mean, Tetzel was lining his own pocket with this. And, uh, and they don't, and they don't allow that. And so they don't have individuals now out there hawking indulgences and, you know, making their money. I mean, we Protestants have that on TV with the, with the TV evangelists. Give me money and everything will be great with you. Okay. We've got our own Tetzels out there. All right. Benny Hinn, next time you see Benny Hinn, just go Johann Tetzel, okay? Now, related then to all of that are the sacraments of the church and the whole works system. And that's what I have for you on page 51, the sacraments of Roman Catholicism. 
Bottom of page 51, the Roman Catholicism has developed an elaborate system of works within which the faithful are to labor during their lifetime in order to earn salvation. The sacraments provide the rungs on the ladder to heaven, beginning in infancy and continuing until death, and with the works of the living faithful on behalf of the part, departed, like we've already seen, even after death. So below we survey what Roman Catholicism teaches regarding the more well-known and utilized sacraments of the church, those of baptism and Eucharist mass, and contrast it with the message of God's grace as taught in Scripture. Now there are seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, but some of those do not apply to every Roman Catholic. For example, marriage is one of the sacraments of the church, but not everybody gets married. And so that's one sacrament that not everybody engages in. Another one is ordination, and that is the priesthood. And obviously not everyone becomes a priest, so that's another sacrament. So not all of the seven are engaged in by everybody within the Catholic Church. And the reason I've chosen these two, baptism and the mass, is because here's what they represent. Now, hear this. Baptism is the initial obtaining of, of merit through the church. And Mass is the ongoing obtaining of merit through the church. So the work system starts at infancy, and it continues not just year after year, it continues literally week after week with the Mass. And those are, those are the most basic, and then you've got penance, uh, but the most basic, uh, the most basic uh, sacraments for the average Roman Catholic who's not a priest, you may even be single uh, and not a priest, so you don't engage in the sacrament of marriage, but baptism and mass, everyone engages in and must engage with. So baptism, page 52. Council of Trends. Justification of the impious is indicated as being a translation, that is a change. And this translation cannot be effected without the labor of regeneration or the desire thereof, as it is written, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If anyone says that baptism is free, that is not necessary to salvation, let him be anathema. Now, see what they call that, the labor of regeneration. Regeneration means to be made alive, to be made spiritually alive. The laver is where the water is. So the water makes alive. The laver of regeneration. And that is the phrase that some of you have heard in church history called baptismal regeneration. That regeneration occurs, spiritual life is given when someone is baptized. Roman Catholicism believes that. Uh, I just want to say here, because we're looking at denominations, that Roman Catholicism is not the only denomination that believes that. And I'm going to be very careful with what I say here, but very accurate. Uh, there is a large church right across the street from us on Fort Street. Uh, South Point Community Christian Church is a church of Christ. I don't know if you all know what that is, but the church of Christ has distinct doctrines. And the most distinctive doctrine of the Church of Christ is baptismal regeneration. That you are regenerated when you are baptized. Now it comes as a shock to people to know that we have churches that are innocuously named that believe that. But they do. And you, one way you can know that a church believes in baptismal regeneration that you've got to be baptized to be saved. 
One way you can know that is those churches engage in baptism every week. Every week. Now think about it. You would have to, wouldn't you? If we believed in baptismal regeneration, at the end of our worship service, which I often do like I did this morning at the end, and I invite people to trust Christ as Savior. But if that were not enough, if you've got to be baptized, then guess what? We get the water going in that thing like all the time. And I'm saying, hey, if you trusted Christ, don't leave. Don't go out in the parking lot. Have you seen some of these people drive? You might get killed. And if you get killed by one of these crazy people, even though you trusted Christ, you ain't going to heaven. Really. So we got to get you in the tank like now. I'm, I'm serious. So every week, baptism's going on. Now, it is what it is. That's what people believe. The Roman Catholic Church is very straightforward about what it believes. Which, frankly, I, I appreciate. Just say what you believe. I mean, and they say it. And, there, and you, there it is to read. You either believe it or you don't. It either comports with what the Bible teaches or it doesn't. And so if there are going to be competing and erroneous teachings out there, then just be straight with what you believe and people will have to make their decisions. But we've got a number of churches who do not tell people they believe that. And I've been shocked at how many people, in fact, there are people in this church who used to go to some of those churches until they were there for years and then they realized, holy cow, I just thought we had a lot of people to baptize. But we're baptizing people because we think that you've got to be baptized to be to be saved. And then when they found that out, they said, I don't, I don't believe that. I've got to... I've got to find another place. So be straight, straightforward about it. But this is what Roman Catholicism believes, and as I say, another's, others believe as well. Middle of page 52, the question and answer Catholic Catechism. What is baptism? Baptism is the sacrament of spiritual rebirth. So again, there's that language of regeneration, being born again, and this comes through baptism. What are the effects? Bottom of page 52, the effects of baptism are the removal of the guilt of sin and all punishment due to sin, conferral of the grace of regeneration and the infused virtues, incorporation into Christ and His church, receiving the baptismal character and the right to heaven. So that's what you get when you are, when you are baptized, unless you then somehow forfeit that later. Because you can commit a mortal sin, and if that mortal sin is not taken care of in the prescribed ways, well, then you will forfeit heaven. So heaven can be yours, but heaven can be forfeited as well by the actions of the, the individual. All right, on page 53, you've got some more questions and answers. But that's baptism, the beginning. And the, in the normal case, that takes place in infancy, but not always. And if it takes place later, if someone gets baptized uh, within Roman Catholicism as an adult, then all of these great things happen that are listed on page 53. I'm not going to take the... Well, look at page, uh, paragraph 1153. It's short. Baptism removes all the penalties, eternal and temporal, attached to original and actual sin. Now, here's what's important. It removes all of those things up to that point. So in the case of an infant, it's original sin... And in the case of somebody who is older, it's original sin and the sin they've actually committed. But it's up to that point. But now I've been baptized. Okay, I'm good to go. But now what? And in an ongoing way, this is what I have at the bottom of page 53. It is the Eucharist, the Mass. And the Eucharist 
in the Mass, and weekly participation in it is the means by which you remain within the good graces of the church. So bottom of 53. We'll read a few of these in the time we have left. <clears throat> Council of Trent. On the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. They say, in the first place, this Holy Synod teaches and openly and simply professes that in the august sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the species of those sensible things. And this faith has ever been in the church of God that immediately after the consecration, the veritable body of our Lord and his veritable blood together with his soul and divinity are under the species of bread and wine. Wherefore, it is most true that as much as is as much as contained under either species as under both for Christ whole and entire is under the species of bread and under any part whatsoever of that species. Likewise, the whole Christ is under the species of wine and under the parts thereof. Council of Trent on transubstantiation, that is, the change of the substance of the bread and the wine when the priest consecrates it into the body and blood of Christ. And because that Christ our Redeemer declared that which he offered under the species of bread to be truly his own body, therefore has it ever been a firm belief in the church of God, and this holy synod doth now declare it anew, that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. And then at the bottom of page 54, a number of anathemas on those who don't believe that. And then, if you will, look at page 55. Page 55, the doctrine on the sacrifice of the Mass. So now, when the consecration of the host and the cup have taken place and have become the body and blood of Jesus, what's happening when people partake of that then? That's what the Mass is about. And I want you to see the bottom half of page 55, and we'll end there. That the sacrifice of the Mass is propitiatory, both for the living and the dead. For inasmuch as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, the same Christ who once offered himself in a bloody matter, manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Council teaches that this is truly propitiatory and that if we contrite and penitent with sincere heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence, draw nigh to God, we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid. For appeased by this sacrifice, the Lord grants the grace and gift of penitence and pardons even the gravest crimes and sins. For the victim is one and the same the same now offering by ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. The fruits of that bloody sacrifice, it is well understood, are received most abundantly through this unbloody one. So far is the latter from derogating in any way from the former. Wherefore, according to the tradition of the apostles, it is rightly offered not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ but not as yet fully purified. Now, do you all see what is being said there? 
when the mass happens, Jesus is being re-crucified. That's what that's saying. In an unbloody manner. In fact, it's precisely, says the Council of Trent, it's precisely what happened on the cross. The only difference is the manner in which it's done. So you have an ongoing sacrifice of Jesus millions of times worldwide every week. And this is required now for the covering of your sins. So you, every week, must go to Mass. And you go to Mass and you have a recovering in an ongoing way of the sins committed after the last Mass that you participated in. And it goes on and on. Now that sets the table well, I think, for us to look at what the Bible says about all of that. What does the Bible say about the sacrifice of Jesus? And whether or not the sacrifice of Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Because that's what propitiation is. Do you remember that big word, propitiatory? That means to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. And the Mass does that. It's truly propitiatory. But what does the Bible teach about the death of Jesus? Propitiating, satisfying, appeasing the wrath of God. And what does the Bible teach about how many times Jesus dies? And what does the Bible teach about how effective that one-time death of Jesus was for everyone who believes in it? And we're going to look at that together next week. I wish we had time this week. But think about those questions. And beginning on page 56, we'll look next week. Let's pray as we depart. Father, thank you for the opportunity to think about these eternal matters. Father, it's so easy for me and for us to think that these issues amongst denominations are turf wars. We're so inundated with partisanship and factions and political wrangling that we sometimes think that what we're doing here is kind of like Republicans versus Democrats. Well, Lord, help us, to, help us to realize that is infinitely more important than all that. And it's not about anyone's turf or any particular name on the outside of a building. It's about truth. It's about what your word teaches as truth. And so thank you for the opportunity to think about these eternal matters. But they are that. They are eternal matters. They are not just matters of life and death. They are more important than that. They are matters of eternal life and death. And so help us to be sober-minded with regard to these things. Help us to see them rightly and see them clearly as taught in your word. Then, having done so, grant us the courage of our convictions. Help us to be willing to stand lovingly but firmly on the truth that is taught in your word about the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that for myself and for this church. I pray that for each of those that are here. There may be some here who have to make very, very difficult choices. Life-altering choices in terms of relationships because they may be disowned. Oh Lord, 
Holy Spirit, grant them conviction. Grant them courage. Help them to know the truth and having known the truth, to stand on the truth. And help us to aid them as each of us seeks to spur one another on to love and good works. Go with us this week, we ask you. And grant us safety and an opportunity to gather again next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.